0: Everybody, this is Phil Town,
1: and this is Danielle Town.
0: Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where you guys know what we do. we're <laughs> we're, we're five <laughs> years into this, you guys pretty much know what we do. Um, so let's keep doing it. Let's just keep diving deeper into Warren Buffett one oh one, and then all the way to the graduate school. Ooh, the Warren Buffett investing.
1: Love that we, it's, characterization. Had, I think it's a, the uh, yeah the the, the Buffett, we don't call it this, but it's the Buffett and Munger podcast, basically, yeah, where we yeah. talk about how the heck to learn about long-term value investing.
0: Yeah. And, and it's fascinating that it's very hard to get this kind of an education. I will I will pat ourselves on the back. It's very hard to go to an institution and get this education. In fact, Columbia Business School is <clears throat> famous for being Warren Buffett's alma mater, where Ben Graham taught for years, where Buffett learned from him, and they formed a you know sort of Graham school there at Columbia, and remarkably, um, the 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 professor who shall remain unnamed, uh, who teaches value investing there, he just recently retired. That'll be a clue. Doesn't really teach this. And it's extraordinary to me how many people say they and and how many people who are good investors worship Warren Buffett and go to his meetings and have been following him for years and don't actually invest the way he does. it's It's really really amazing. It, this kind of investing um, doesn't lend itself well to institutional investing. it It really is difficult for institutional fund managers, meaning Wall Street. To copy this kind of investing strategy, if not yeah, it's impossible, it's an
1: interesting question. I don't know anything about that professor. There's a great um, there's a great newsletter that Columbia students put out, which is um, called the It's like the Graham and Doddsville newsletter, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic resource for value investing uh, profiles of investors, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I'm not gonna cosign anything negative about Columbia because they're the ones who are talking about value investing in an educational environment, which I think is important. It is. But
0: I will I, say though, there's a certain purity to what Buffett and Munger do. Yeah. A kind of religious religiosity to it. There's a there's a kind of a dogma to it. Not kind of. There's a dogma. Yeah, there there's is. There's a set of beliefs,
1: and I think and that you have strongly educated me about that dogma. On I this, I think podcast.
0: Columbia is less educated in the dogma
1: than, <laughs> than this
0: podcast, and I, and I would, I would, I would be happy to debate that with anybody at Columbia. And mm. I don't think it's very debatable. I mean, you can read the the wonderful Graham and Doddsville newsletter, and you'll see for yourself. It is loaded with sort of peripheral kinds of value investing. So there's a broad know. I also
1: think really strongly that investing is so personal. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to the concept of an investing practice that you're constantly learning and growing and trying to Mm, get better at something that's not perfectible. So I would be really surprised if there were, I mean, I'm sure there are a few, but we all turn it into our own thing, right? Like we all have our own personalities. We all have the types of companies that we're drawn to just through our own interests and circles of competence and it makes sense to me that people take the dogma take the education and turn it into something slightly different that that resonates with them that works with their lifestyle with their investing practice and yes with their investors if they're a professional Um, those are real life incentives that i think can't be ignored
0: I, and I think there's a great there's a great bumper sticker from the '70s that read, uh, "Your karma ran over my dogma." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and it, there's there's a certain feeling there that dogma is in it is a little bit of a difficult thing in its own right. And I will tell you, I will admit it. You know, I'm I'm a pure. I'm a what is it? I'm I'm about purity in in the dogma as I see it. And I'm quite sure that um, I could sit down with Warren and Charlie and they would go, no, <laughs> no, that's, this is wrong or that's wrong. What about or your,
1: you mean about your view about of?
0: My dogma. Yeah, right?
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But there are certain things that, and, and honestly, it's, you see Warren evolving over the years, right? You just see the evolution taking place from the guy God, who called, no you know, coffee beans or something for America. I mean, just driving, hard goods across town to collect stock certificates and uh, all the way to uh, now, you know, just being unable unable by virtual size to do the kinds of things he did in the past. So yeah, it all, Uh, it all evolves. You're right. Yeah. And I I think
1: about like, since I've been around, like I distinctly remember us starting this. And once we got past the initial sort of thing, what is value investing, et cetera? I remember you telling me that Buffett does not invest in tech companies because he doesn't understand them. And even at the time, I was like, wow, that really excludes like most companies. And I think, you know, for 10 years ago, tech companies were still rather siloed as tech exclusive, but now virtually every company is involved with tech in a mm. major way. Mm and true. and so in the last 5 years we've seen that being true buffett didn't in, famously didn't invest in tech companies to now he's investing in like cutting edge tech companies that a lot of people don't understand like snowflake it's really really interesting to watch that and and apple which people do understand but like is demonstrably a tech company it's just so interesting to see the the way that he's really able to like not fall back on his own dogma (laughs) right Right. like you've got that confirmation bias of he's been saving saying to the world for 20 years i don't invest in tech companies because i don't understand them not because i don't like them because i don't understand them and then he's like nope forget that got it figured it out i'm on it (laughs) and charlie it's amazing
0: and Charlie owns a tech company. Yeah, they've turned true. The, the with Daily, Daily Journal, Journal, a bunch of the true. oldest farts in the on the planet who are still investing, and literally the oldest group. Charlie makes fun of their board of directors that they brought somebody in who's eighty-four, and he lowered the average age of the board of directors by about a decade. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a tech company now. Daily Journal,
1: absolutely. Has You're so right.
0: From being a newspaper for lawyers to a technology company that is producing, uh, that is writing software for the courts,
1: um, and like and trying to intricate software. Like, oh yeah, it's not just like they they make an app or something.
0: Oh, one-off it's software kinds yeah. of stuff, yeah. the toughest kind of software. And uh, and Charlie, who you know doesn't like risk capital, calls it a venture capital scheme, <laughs> right? So there, these guys, um, I mean, they have certainly laid out the principles of investing, and we've been diving deep into those for years. Um, but those principles are broad, and they they really sort of require you to continue to grow as a human being, to continue to open yourself up to new experiences, and to continue to focus on what's turning you on. What What do you think about the future? Where 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 do you want to go with the future? And voting for it with your money. So that's all we're trying to teach you to do, is to figure out what you need to know to vote your money. Um, you know, put your money where your mouth is and and vote it by putting money into things that you really want to own.
1: And I think what I, I really take personally from that is just because I've said something, I'm trying to think if I've done this, I don't know, maybe I have already, just because I've said something publicly doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to change that in the future. And I think there's so many investors who talk about how hard it is to say, like, I really like this company. They say it publicly. They get behind it. They put their name behind it. And at that point, it's really mentally hard to make the shift to change your mind about that company, even when the signs are telling you to. And, I mean, Buffett's done that with individual companies as well. But in general, I just find his ability to just change what he's up to so inspiring because it looks easy. He makes it look easy, but it's hard to do that.
0: Well, let's talk about that for just a second. It's, it's something that Charlie and Warren pride themselves on, um, that, that they, they stay aggressively within their circle of competence, they believe. Um, but that circle continues to grow. Totally. As you learn and you learn, the circle continues to grow and expand and they, part of the practice of staying within that circle of competence is to avoid the pitfalls of confirmation bias that that sense that you know um, and then you you, you defend it mm-hmm. and almost the less you know like you kind of deep down subconsciously know you don't know, then you defend it even more
2: mm-hmm. and
0: and and confirmation bias means that you look for those things which, confirm your opinion mm-hmm. and you discount those things or ignore them completely that do not confirm your opinion.
1: And we do it unconsciously. That's the and really amazing it, thing that the research has really shown.
0: really tough part of that.
1: It's one thing to sit there and be like, oh, I like that point a lot. I must be, uh, you know, propping up my own point, my own conclusion. But mm-hmm. we do it without realizing it. We say to ourselves like, oh, that negative earnings report isn't really a problem because of X, Y, and Z, and I can explain it away. And if you're somebody who's come in without any preconceived notions, you might, evol- you might evaluate it differently.
0: Well, it's, it's one of the advantages we have if we're working with someone else Right, yeah, if you've that's got true. a monger well, to bounce things off of, right? Yeah, yeah, Warren calls Charlie the abominable no man, yeah, because it's so much easier to say no when it's not your idea. And we do the same thing here. I mean, my analysts, you know, I throw them ideas, and they'll they'll come up with ideas on their own. But if I've tossed them an idea, it's certainly not something I have a stake in, right? I'm I'm not committed to it in any way. Just think, hey, this is a good idea. Take a look at it. Uh, or they come back with something and they say oh this is this is really worth digging into it's so much easier for me to start chopping it apart hmm. you know really so i mean fast actually i like it it's fun i like that's something i like to do it's just you know chop apart that concept that somebody is saying is so great it's sort of and it's it's just a lifetime of habit of doing it uh, makes me really fun to discuss things with doesn't tell it tell me about it <laughs> Which side do you want to take on this and then just go the other way? You know? <laughs> I we wrote about that a bit in Invested, Daniel was about her me me forcing her to think about things she did different kinds of ways and she did not like it. It was not fun.
1: Well, we don't have to get into that.
0: No, we don't have to. Let's take let's <laughs> but take a I, question I, here. I about will this.
1: say well, let me just add. Yeah, we're going to take a question. Um, I just want to add one more idea about removing your unconscious bias, uh, your confirmation bias when it comes to investing that I've found helpful because I don't have analysts to pay to do it for me. <laughs> so um, what I have found actually surprisingly helpful and very irritating is asking a friend or a family member, just whoever. What they think about a given company, if it's a company that they have like heard of or used in some like any, let's say like Amazon, like, you know, what do you think about Amazon? I'm looking at it this way. What do you think? They don't know anything about how to do investing analysis. But, you know, smart people that you know are smart people. And they can ask questions that usually are questions that me having gone through my standardized process... I haven't thought about because there's somebody coming at it totally differently, totally out of the blue, totally off the cuff. Right. So it's really helpful to me actually to talk to somebody who knows zero about what I'm trying to do and what I'm researching because they're not on the same way, the same wavelength as I am. And that really brings up a lot of like out of left field, types of questions. And then I have to go back and figure out the answers to all those things. And it makes me such a better investor. So that's another free idea and a way to, uh, have hopefully a non-annoying conversation with a friend.
0: And you guys do this, do this stuff. It's just too easy for your brain to get into confirmation bias when you're all on your own and, and, uh, and not bouncing ideas off somebody who's willing to be skeptical or who's willing to be challenging. Um, about about those ideas. So take that to heart. It's a really good, good, important thing to do. All right. Yeah. What do we got?
1: Yeah. yeah. What do we got All for right. questions? We got a question from Meg. Let's see if my volume is up.
2: Yes. Hi, Phil and Danielle. This is Meg calling from Whidbey Island. I am wondering if you can help with a question about stock splits, and how it affects how we can calculate our margin of safety. I um, know that we use a historic earnings per share uh, trailing 12 months for the calculation, and I'm a little confused on how when a stock splits like the apple um, that split four to one, how we can use historical data to still calculate that margin of safety. Uh, Any insights, any clarification you can offer is greatly appreciated. Super love the podcast, love your books, and um, really enjoyed your class, Phil. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, Meg. Meg killing it with the practical questions. I love it.
0: (laughs) So can you want to explain what a four-to-one split means for Apple? What is that?
1: Yeah, so what a stock split is, is when you have um, X number of stock, every company gets to decide how many shares of stock they have. There's no rules about it. You can have one, although that would make things complicated if you have more than one shareholder. Or you can have a billion shares. Really, the company just 100% decides. So those shares are out there on the public market. And then sometimes for various reasons, usually it's that the – the, the price of an individual share of stock is getting too expensive or they want to uh, shift their ownership around a little. They can just, it's a purely legal uh, method of splitting a share of stock from one into however many they want. So she asked about Apple, where they went from one to four. So a given share of stock that I own, let's say of Apple, is just split into quarters, and I overnight own four shares of Apple for that one. And so the total amount of actual shares has quadrupled, but the pie is the same size. The total actual ownership of the company is the same size. Everybody just owns four times as many actual shares as they used to. And, and by doing that, the price of each individual share conceivably would be cut into four as well. What tends to happen in the public markets is other things, but that is the the legal version of it.
0: At least immediately it gets cut into yeah. quarters. Yeah, when, that's the, right. The moment, the next day when it opens up after the stock split, it is absolutely perfectly cut into quarters. Correct, at the open. correct. And then all kinds of fun things happen. Okay, that's very good. That's, that's exactly uh, what I'd hoped would happen when I sent you to law school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you sent me to please
0: okay when i <laughs> can we when have I, a little I,
1: uh, more respect for okay
0: when you chose to go to law school <laughs> all right so um it's 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 so interesting because meg's problem isn't that she doesn't understand the stock split thing
1: no not we at all did that she for everybody like she got it yeah
0: she got that totally it's the fact that she understands it quite well and that creates a problem she's thinking I'm looking at historical data that goes back 10, 20 years. Um, And that data is, you know, yeah. today I'm looking at it the day before the stock split and it is historical based on the number of shares. If it's historically, you know, on a per share data basis, then it is absolutely dependent on the number of shares that are outstanding Mm -hmm. um, or that are, yeah, that are basically out there in the market. And so her question is, after they split it into quarters, how can I rely on data that isn't accurate anymore? It's four times too high mm-hmm. effectively mm-hmm. Um, And that is uh, exactly a, a, a wonderful question because it does, it does say you understand what's going on. So good on Whidby Island, way to go. That's kind of up where I spent a lot of time in my youth.
1: Oh, is I, it? I, I was wondering where it was.
0: Yeah, it was
1: around Washington.
0: It's, yeah, it's right outside Seattle. Yeah, so, cool. so, really one of the great places to live would be island
1: families have a lot going on let
0: ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up like
2: delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents try three new brainy chews to help you focus chill out or get energized Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not
0: been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Some little place in the Banana Sounds Belt. They have, they have sunshine when Seattle's raining.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Extra lovely.
0: Oh, it is really nice out there. Um, so, any case, what happens, Meg, is that this is the great advantage of um, having... Um, data providers, because what they do is the moment that there's an announcement, there's going to be a stock split as they prepare to change all of the data to reflect the new number of shares. So they actually go back and recalculate all of the data as deep as it goes, as far back as it goes in light of the new number of shares. So immediately with with you know with quality data providers immediately when the stock opens and you go to to the historical data, um, you will see that it reflects this four to one split. Everything will have been cut in by four, by divided by four. Now that is everything except the old original documents. They are exactly. going to show <laughs> the shares that existed in that year or in that quarter. So when you go to the original documents, um, you will see per share stuff going on there that won't be reflected in the compiled data um, that we use on the internet. And it is one of the great advantages of the internet. Man alive, is that stuff tough to do before the internet came along. even value line would have all kinds of things they'd have to do. They'd have to put notes in the back of all the documents that they're sending to tell you mm. that those documents are no longer accurate. That they've just divided everything by four in your head, right? Stuff like wow. that.
1: Yeah. But
0: now it's just automatic, and we don't even hardly think about it, Meg. So it's just just make sure you're getting data from a good provider, which would mean all, all any of the ones that are big out there uh, are are getting fed that that information correctly.
1: Also, I tend to use whole numbers is how I think about it, which is a weird term, I guess. I tend to use like numbers that apply to the entire company and are not per Mm -hmm. share Mm -hmm. in my calculations because I I do it because I really want to have the mindset of thinking about the entire company always. And as an owner of the entire company, um, I want to know what's going on with the whole thing. So my numbers... Don't re- I don't actually really, I'm trying to think of like where I use per share and it's very rare. So my numbers really wouldn't change at all right. um, just because there's a stock split. So that's like right. also if you're creating a spreadsheet and you've got, you're tracking it on your own, that's a way to not be subject to these really like artificial changes that are being done.
0: Now, one more, one more way to go with this is what we do on our toolbox, which is the tool set I built for me to, with and our students use, uh, this just save me time, and that is I take the current number of shares, and I divide it all the way back historically. And I, in other words, when I want to look at the per share data back in 2006, I want to see it in light of today's shares. Like, how does this company look effectively doing what Danielle's doing, except doing it on a per share basis? I'm looking at the real number, but just divided by the current number of shares. Wait, I don't gives, understand
1: that. So you take, like, what, what? Give me an example. What do you mean?
0: Okay. Well, let's say Apple has a um, thousand shares, and they like split four to one into four thousand okay. shares. Right. Okay. Okay. So the historical data on on most websites is going to reflect a four to one split. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, but a four to one split based on the number of shares that were available in that year back in 2006. So if in 2006, Apple only had 500 shares, Mm
1: -hmm. a four to
0: one splits going to make 2000 shares. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And today they've got 4,000 shares. So you'll look back at the data um, that is divided into earnings per share. It's being divided by those 2000 shares. And that gives you a, uh, to me it gives you a misleading view of what's going on in the company just as
1: you're saying the internet site will automatically use the the 2000 shares or right. the they're internet gonna- site will automatically use the 4000 shares
0: <clears throat> they're going to divide by well they're not going to use any specific number of shares what they're going to do is divide by 4
1: oh i got you okay yeah yeah yeah.
0: So if there were 2,000 shares, you know, or if there were 500, they're going to multiply by So
1: whatever it was, it's times, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's times 4. So whatever it was, was times 4. Now that gives you an earnings per share view of the world in that year, but it doesn't give you an owner's view.
1: Which which I think also what you're saying is, without having said it exactly, is that in this example, between 2006 and now, they created 500 additional shares. Right. So they took the company from having 500 shares to having 1,000 shares, which is uh, very important to those shareholders of the 500 shares because they just got diluted by 50%. Exactly.
0: You don't see the historical dilution Mm -hmm. when you don't plug the new number in all the way back. The historical dilution, so if, if you're using 2,000 shares back in 2006 after the split, um, and you're getting a dollar per share of earnings, you you're going to be tricked into thinking those earnings were better than they were in today's view of the world. So they if we if we look at it through the lens of four thousand shares, we're going to see that, oh, the earnings are actually fifty cents back mm-hmm. in two thousand and six relative today. And then we can calculate the growth properly, which is what we're really interested in. How have the earnings been growing? Well, if you're faked out by having the wrong number of shares back then, you're going to get a wrong number. And a lot of what happens on these databases is they gift you a wrong number, a wrong growth number. Because, and that's exactly why these guys buy back their stock. That's exactly why they want to talk to you ent- entirely in terms of earnings per share. It's exactly why you don't, or really should be, one of the reasons why you don't use earnings per share is because you're not letting them fool you into thinking the growth is better than it is.
1: That's really interesting. I really hadn't gone through that thought process to think about what the dilution would have done to any old per share information. That's really, really interesting. Yeah,
0: that's why we do it. So how do you
1: you manually take those numbers?
2: mm
0: -hmm. We just go back and, well, the computer does it, but yeah, it's just an algorithm that says ignore the number of shares that were there. So we don't calculate earnings per share From the data set that we get from, let's say, Morningstar or somebody like Mm -hmm. that at CompuStat or Mm -hmm. whoever, S&P 500 or the uh, S&P, we do it ourselves So uh, because that's how I want to look at it. I want to look at it the way I taught you to look at it. Look at it like an owner. Yeah. But there's advantages to looking at it on a per share basis because you can quickly calculate the price and it's just easier in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting.
0: Cool. Well, good, good stuff, Meg. Thank you for asking that. And yeah. uh, hopefully hopefully, the data that you're using will quickly update itself and you look back historically and there it is. By the way, all the charts do that as well. They immediately change the, um, the share price historically to one reflecting the, the, uh, the current stock. Yeah. So that would be like why Apple was at $460 years ago. You know it was because historically there it is at $460. Did people talk about it. They wrote about it. Oh, it's $460. I'm going to buy it at $400. <clears throat> then you go back and you look at it and the chart shows that, oh, when it was $400, it was actually at $13 because they've had two stock splits or something, right? <laughs> so you, you it can be confusing if you don't know that they're re- retroactively going back and changing everything to reflect the current shares. Yeah,
1: it is kind of a... Messes with your mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah. By the by way, the way some, s-
0: <laughs> some stock charts will change the stock price data also based on distribution of dividends, which can be very confusing. So, Wait, what? Yeah, they'll. What <laughs> actually, are you saying?
1: Did you say they can change the stock price data based on dividends? Yes. Tell me about that.
0: Oh yeah, that that gets really nasty. So just a heads up. Look look on whatever charting program you're using. And, and see if they give you an, a choice to to include dividends or not include dividends. I don't mean show you when the dividends occurred or when it was declared right uh, to, to be occurring. I mean they actually adjust price for the fact that people got paid.
1: Well, what does that mean? So like if a stock price is 10 bucks and the dividend that went out just yesterday is 50 cents, cents then this chart would show a price of 1050.
0: Some will, yeah. And you'll interesting. get this really. I don't know if I've ever
1: seen that option. Yeah, just my charts.
0: Many don't, some do. Be sure you know what you're looking at, number one. And number two on charting is the other thing is you want to be sure that your charts are set for logarithmic numbers, not linear numbers, because you end up with this really skewed view of the world if you're using a linear chart. A linear chart shows that the distance that the chart moves up like to your naked eye <clears throat> let's say let's say it's going up at a 45 degree angle or something for an inch that that amount of distance is the same whether the stock moved from five dollars to uh, ten dollars or from one thousand dollars to um, one thousand and whatever that would be mm, yeah, $5. Yeah. So it's it you end up with this very wrong view of how what's really going on. What you want is logarithmic so that a double in the chart moves the chart the same amount. A mm. double in price moves the chart the same amount. So moving from $5 to $10 would be the same as moving from 1000 to 2000
2: mm-hmm. in terms
0: of the pricing.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then you'll get a view of the world that's more correct.
1: I also just want to say there can also be reverse stock splits where they take, let's say, two shares of stock and turn them into one share of stock. So just to say that that also exists.
0: Yeah. And why would they do that?
1: Well, <laughs> they want to make their stock price look better. <laughs>
0: right. It's There's not a lot of good reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that they're having trouble maintaining a stock price sufficiently high to stay listed at the NASDAQ or American or New York stock exchanges, which have a minimum, they don't want to have penny quote penny stocks, which now today means anything below five dollars per share. They don't want them on there um, for various reasons, but but one of which is there's certain prestige and (laughs) like eh, there's a certain lack of prestige on having a forty-two cent stock.
1: I think it's also just keeping up with the hundreds of stocks that are at that level. It's like. Culling oh, the, yeah, the level the, the, of workload. The,
0: right, exactly. So, okay, all all good things to remember, none of which are really brutally important, except I think what Danielle was saying is be sure you think of it like an owner. Look at it like an owner would. You're not going to look at it per share because there's only one share.
1: Yeah, oh, I like that.
0: There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Maiden.